Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 5. And we're starting a new section, new passage this morning. Verse 43 to 48. So let's read this uh, portion first. You all know that I will not finish this today. <laughs> it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Back in uh, 1958, uh, a well-known liberal theologian by the name of Dr. Norman Pittenger published a critique of C.S. Lewis. And among his criticisms was the accusation that Lewis didn't seem to care much for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, well, C.S. Lewis wrote an article responding to Dr. Pittenger in which he gave this response, quote, As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure, end quote. As we would expect from Lewis, it was the perfect comeback. He, but it's also an accurate statement of how the Sermon on the Mount affects any serious believing reader. And there is perhaps no section of that sermon which is more difficult to wrap your mind around. And, and yet at the same time, it is the section which sums up what it is to be the heart, what is to be the heart and mind of the believer. This section is it. If there is one statement made by Jesus that the world recognizes as the summation of what Christianity ought to be like, it's love your enemies. Uh, the famous American historian and philosopher of the 20th century, Will Durant, was once asked what he considered to be the Christian ethic. And he summed it up with the words, well, basically, it's love your enemies. And then he said, without question, Jesus set the highest ethic ever set in the history of man, but it's too bad nobody ever lived up to it. Uh, Durant was certainly correct. If love is the greatest thing, then loving your enemies is the greatest thing uh, that love can possibly do. And so the highest good, the ultimate goal of all of our kingdom living is to be found in this concept of loving our enemies. Now, when Jesus gives this illustration, he is contrasting the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with the true righteousness of God. He contrasts their kind of love with God's kind of love. And nowhere did their humanistic, self-centered system of religion differ more from God's standards than in the matter of love. Nowhere had God's standard been so corrupted as in the way the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees viewed themselves 
in relation to others. Nowhere was it more evident that they lacked humility, that they failed to mourn over their own sin, that they lacked meekness, that they did not yearn for true righteousness, that they were not merciful or pure of heart, and they had no peacemaking spirit than in regard to this matter of love. They had produced all kinds of rabbinic traditions, and they followed all kinds of religious ceremonies and rituals. They were the most religious people of their time. And yet God says, you're no different than anybody else. My standard is that you not act like them, that you do more than even the best man can do. But you see, the highest human ethic falls woefully short of God's standard. And this isn't something new that Jesus is teaching. God has always called his people to a higher standard. We're called to be unique. That's the thrust of this whole sermon. God has called us out of the world system to be a separate people with convictions and commitments and standards that we live by, which are not the world's standards. And nowhere is the distinction between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God made clearer than in the life of a believer. And so Jesus is confronting the scribes and Pharisees humanistic religious tradition by saying that it falls woefully short of God's standard. Now, just as we have with the other five illustrations that Jesus has used in this chapter, we will look first at what the Old Testament, the Mosaic law taught, and then we'll look at the perversion by the rabbinic traditions. And then finally, we will examine the divine perspective that Jesus taught. So let's begin by looking at the teaching of the Old Testament. Look at the beginning of verse 43. It says, you shall love your neighbor. Of course, that's only part of what verse 43 says, but we'll come back to the rest of it. The point I want to make is that this phrase is correct, albeit incomplete. Uh, it's only a part of what Leviticus 19.18 says. The complete statement is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus repeated that command for them when he was asked by a lawyer in Matthew 22, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus responded, how? You love your Lord, your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, strength. And he said, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, you can keep all of the law and the prophets, every command, one by one, or you can just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your neighbor as yourself, and that'll cover it all. Uh, that's the sum of it all. It's also indicated in Romans 13.8 uh, by the Apostle Paul when he wrote, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Uh, you say, what do you mean, Paul? How has he fulfilled the law? Well, he expands and clarifies in verse 9, the next verse. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says love sums up the whole law. Uh, Jesus says love sums up the whole law. And so in Matthew 5, where our Lord begins to speak about loving, he is touching on that which sums up the whole law. 
So then what did the Old Testament teach? What did the Old Testament really teach about loving your neighbor? And how broad is that term neighbor? What do we mean by it? Well, let's turn over and look, turn back to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. Now here we are dealing with some of the Levitical law, some of the codes for Israel's behavior. And this is a very practical, simple rule. Verse 1. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. Now let me first point out that the word countryman there that my New American Standard uses all the way down through verse 4 is literally the word brother. So in this specific case, it refers to another Jew. Uh, so if your brother has an animal that gets loose, goes astray, you want to immediately come to assist. The point being you meet another person's need. Verse 2. If your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. Let's say you find a stray couple of sheep uh, or an ox somewhere and you really don't know who it belongs to. Uh, you're to take it home, feed it and care for it as long as it's necessary. There was no such thing as finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Verse three. Thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment. You shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. Now that's the general principle about lost and found. When somebody loses it, you don't own it just because you found it. You just keep it till he comes to get it, and then you give it to him. That, again, it's meeting someone else's need. Verse 4. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention then to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. Sometimes an animal would, may fall because of his burden was too heavy or the animal was just so tired it just fell down. Well, it would be hard for the owner to get the animal back up onto its feet by himself. So you're to come to his aid. So in this passage, your countryman, your brother, is your neighbor who you are to treat with love and kindness by helping him recover his property and give help when needed. Now let's turn over to Exodus 23. Exodus 23 and see what Moses said there. Here in this passage, Exodus 23, beginning in verse 4, we see the same principle that we saw in Deuteronomy 22. It says, verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Now notice that's the exact same principle as Deuteronomy 22, except Deuteronomy used the term brother. Now it says enemy, if you meet your enemy's ox. So the term brother obviously includes those who are also your enemies. Now, this doesn't mean a foreign enemy of the nation. Uh, this refers to your personal enemy. Uh, in this case, a fellow Jew who, for whatever reason, uh, uh, is a foe, perhaps due to some personal or perceived wrong. 
Uh, but what I want you to see is that this person is your enemy. Verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. In other words, you come across someone who hates you and his animal has fallen under its load. You don't say, serves your right. I hope your donkey dies and your wife has to load all that burden on your back. You understand it's that retaliatory spirit that wells up inside of us at times. Uh, but Moses says, no, you go and help him even if he's your enemy. In other words, the standard never changes. The, the term brother is big enough to include whoever happens to have a need. That's where we determine the meaning of neighbor. Neighbor is as big as need. Uh, that's all. So when the Bible says, love your neighbor, it simply widens up to encompass anyone who has a need, no matter how they feel about you. That's the issue. And as I said, we're not talking about nation against nation in a war. We're talking about the day-to-day -day routine of human relationships. Look with me at Job 31. Job 31. As you know, Job has some friends telling him that the reason he is suffering so badly is because he's a sinner. He's lost all his money, all his children have been killed, his body's become infected with loathsome sores. He is suffering. And the reality is that he's really being used by God as an illustration. In actuality, he hasn't done any sinful thing to bring this upon himself, but all of his counselors think he has. And so they're continually telling him that he's a sinner. And Job starts to think about and respond to this issue. And one of the things he does is that he really hasn't done some sin. He says is that he really hasn't done some sin to deserve this. Look at verse 29. Here's what he says. Have I rejoiced in the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? In other words, have I been excited and thrilled when my enemy got what he deserved? And the implication is, if I did that, then I would have sinned. Uh, I mean, you would have the right to accuse me if I had ever rejoiced at the destruction of someone who hated me. Now, that really touches on a nerve of human behavior, doesn't it? Because when there's someone who is your enemy, and they fall into problems, what's the first reaction we have? Uh, yeah, couldn't happen to a better guy. Or if someone deserved it, he sure did. And you love it. And the worse the problem, the better you like it. That's human nature. Job says, but I didn't do that, or else I would have sinned. Verse 30. No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. He says, I've never allowed my mouth to express any evil thought towards someone. We do that a lot, don't we? Every one of us has vocally wished evil on our enemies at some point in time. Job says, I didn't do that either. I never rejoiced when they fell into calamity. I never wished them evil. Verse 31. 
Have the men of my tent not said, Who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. In other words, even my servants know that there's never been anyone who I turned away from my table. I fed everyone who ever came by, enemy, alien, traveler. I've shown kindness to all of them. Let me remind you that Job lived during the time of the patriarchs, and the book of Job was the very first book of Scripture ever written. So the attitude from the very beginning of Scripture has been one of love and forgiveness, not wishing evil even upon an enemy. Now look further with me at Psalm 7. Psalm 7 verse 3. David is praying a prayer that is similar to what Job is saying. He says, O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who was without cause, who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust, Selah. He says, Lord, if I have sinned by being evil to one who was good or if I have sinned, by being evil to one who was evil to me, then destroy me. David really pinpoints two things. It's wrong to be evil towards those who are good to you, and it's wrong to be evil towards those who are evil to you. He's justifying himself to God, and here he says, God, I've looked at my heart, and I have never given back evil for good, and I've never given back evil for evil. So you see, the Old Testament never justifies hating an enemy. Yes. Yes, he did. We'll get to that eventually. <laughs> okay, look over at uh, Psalm 35, 12. David says of his enemies, They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. In other words, when they repaid me with evil, after I did good to them, my soul was in sorrow. But when they were sick, I sorrowed and mourned for them. That's what the phrase, my clothing with sackcloth means. When a Jew put on sackcloth and ashes, he was in mourning. So David says, when I was good to them, they were cruel to me. When evil fell on them, I mourned over them. My heart broke over them. This is the magnanimous, unbelievable, supernatural forgiveness that comes from the heart of David. And he even fasted and prayed for his enemies when they fell into calamity. Verse 14, I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. So David brings together what we saw in Deuteronomy 22 and Exodus 23, and he says, my enemy is my brother. My enemy is my friend in that sense. I even sorrow for them like I sorrow for my own mother. Now, when a man can weep over his enemy 
who is experiencing calamity like he weeps over his mother. He has learned a dimension of love that is far beyond the human level. And that's the teaching of the Old Testament. Look at Proverbs for a moment. Let's start with Proverbs 17.5. Proverbs 17.5. It says, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. When you rejoice over some terrible thing that has fallen on someone such as poverty or a calamity, you will not go unpunished. That's a sin, even if that person is an enemy. Proverbs 24, Proverbs 24, 29. Here's the command. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. In other words, don't say, I'm going to get even with the guy for what he did to me. He deserves it. I'm going to give him his due. Uh, don't be a retaliatory person. Don't strike back at your enemy. That's the opposite of what we know as the golden rule. And then finally in Proverbs 25, 21, we find the sum of it all. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So what the Old Testament teaches is that your enemy is your neighbor. Your enemy in a human sense is your brother. Not in the spiritual sense, but in the sense that you are both human beings. And in that sense, he is your brother. She is your sister. Let me show you some illustrations. Let's start with Genesis 13 and see how the Old Testament honored this kind of attitude towards an enemy. Genesis 13. You're familiar with this story. Abram and Lot had a dispute. Their families, their servants, and animals had grown so large that there were too many of them to occupy one plot of land. Uh, the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. That's verse 6. Verse 7 says, There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot, Lot's livestock. So here you have a situation in which strife resulted in a division between the two groups. They became enemies, constantly squabbling over grazing rights. It was sort of like the fights that took place in the settling of the American West between the ranchers and farmers over water rights and grazing rights. And so the result was a battle between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen over who got what. Now, how was it handled? Bitterly or antagonistically? Well, what you see when you read the details is the virtue of Abram. Look at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Now this is an amazing reaction. Abram ended the fight right there because he says, Lot, you take whatever you want, I'll take what's left. You pick out whatever you like, you can have it. That's how to treat an enemy. Give them the very best that there is. And so beginning in verse 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. That's It means it was as lush as the Garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar, that's the area around the Nile. Uh, so it was very lush and well watered. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, so they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. Now we could talk a lot about the stupidity of Lot moving his tents towards Sodom and how he eventually got closer and closer until he was actually living in Sodom and how God had to rescue him and his family from there and how his wife turned into a pillar of salt. But the point I want you to see here is that Abram treated an enemy as God tells us in his word to treat one. He loved him as he loved himself. Instead of seeking the land for himself, he sought the best for his enemy. The Bible honors that kind of virtue. 1 Samuel 24 gives us another illustration. Let's go there. I want to look at the first eight verses of 1 Samuel 24. It says, beginning verse 1, Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul returns from chasing down the Philistines, and his men tells him David and his guys are hiding out in En Gedi. And Saul considered David to be a threat to his throne, and he had been trying to find and kill David. So his men tell him David's in En Gedi. He can get him there. Verse 2, <clears throat> Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheep bowls on the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Now, let me see if I can describe this in an appropriate manner. Uh, the, the men in those days wore long robes. And uh, so when they squatted down to go to the bathroom, their robes would be spread out all around them and they would relieve themselves. And in this case, David and his men were hiding further back in the cave. And Saul is oblivious to that fact and is simply doing his thing there, thinking he's the only one in the bathroom. Verse 4, the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day that the Lord, of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as what seems good to you. Can you imagine the excited whispers and hand signaling that was going on between David and his men? Uh, his men say, David, the Lord's prophecies come true. He's given you your enemy into your hands. Here he is. Here we are in a cave in the middle of nowhere, and in walks our enemy to go to the bathroom. He's literally a sitting duck. Kill him now while you can. Well, what happened? The end of verse 4 says, then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. He snuck up behind Saul and cut off a piece of his robe that was laying on the ground behind him while Saul was squatted down doing his business. Now, I'm sure that David's men were a little bit frustrated by that. Uh, after all, that's not what they had in mind. But notice the sensitivity of David's heart. Verse 5. 
It came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. He was convicted about doing that. Verse 6, so he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. You can feel that way about an enemy. After all, he's a creation of God. And verse 7 says, David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went his way. And so then it says that afterwards, now afterward David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul saying, my Lord, the king. Can you imagine the jolt that must have been for Saul? And then Saul looked behind him. David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Amazing. He pays homage to his evil enemy. David was a godly man like Abram. You see, virtue behaves towards an enemy like we would behave towards a friend because an enemy is a neighbor. I want you to show you one other illustration. It's found in 2 Samuel 16. 2 Samuel 16. And again, it's David. Now, as you know, David was a terrible father. He did nothing when his son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, and then Absalom avenged Tamar by having Amnon murdered and fled to another land. Three years later, Joab finally pressures David into recalling Absalom back to Jerusalem. But even then, David refused to let Absalom come into his presence, and so Absalom lived in a separate house in Jerusalem for two years and never saw David. So that's a total of five years that David was estranged from Absalom. And so Absalom begins to rebel against David's authority as king and eventually gained the backing of most of the people so that David and his supporters had to flee for their lives. And in the middle of all this, 2 Samuel 16.5 tells us that when King David came to Bahurim, Behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. So here's this guy, Shimei, who is one of Saul's descendants. So naturally he feels like David has usurped his family, uh, his family's kingdom. And now all of his anger towards David comes pouring out. And so he's coming out and he's calling on God to curse David. That was the a violation of Exodus 22:28, which says, You shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. Uh, so Shammai was saying things that were probably something like, May Yahweh curse you, David, and damn you to Sheol. Uh, it was blasphemous. Interestingly, it harkens back to 1 Samuel 17, 43, when David is facing down Goliath, and it says Goliath cursed David by his God. So this is the second time that David is cursed by an opponent, only this time it's done in the name of Yahweh. Verse 6, he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. So he starts throwing rocks at all of them and cursing David. Now, understand that Shammai wasn't walking right alongside David and his men. Uh, he, wasn't on, he wasn't even on the other side of the road. Uh, according to verse 13, he was doing this from the hillside that ran parallel along the hill that David and his men were on. 
so he was at what he considered a safe distance. But regardless, what he said was terrible. And we read in verses 7 and 8, Then Thus Shammai said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. In other words, Shammai is saying, You're getting, getting what you deserve, David. Yahweh's gotten even with you for what you did to my family member, King Saul. You took over the throne that belonged to Saul, and now God has given Absalom the kingdom. Verse 9, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Abishai was one of David's generals. Uh, he was fiercely loyal to David. And apparently calling someone a dead dog was a bad thing. Um, I, I mean, typically in Scripture, dogs are not thought of as nice pets. They are filthy, dirty scavengers. Uh, when wicked King Ahab was killed in battle, the dogs licked the blood out of his chariot. Uh, it was a pack of dogs that ate the body of Jezebel when she was thrown out of uh, the, to her death out of the castle window. In Jeremiah 15, God's pronouncing doom on apostate Israel. And verse 3 says, I will appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field to devour and destroy. Uh, so dogs were seen as vicious scavengers who ate the bodies of the dead. In Jesus' parable of, the, of poor Lazarus and the rich man, he says Lazarus was laying by the gate hungry and covered with sores, and the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Uh, the Jews frequently referred to the Gentiles as dogs. Uh, but Paul turned that figure of speech on his head when he told the Philippians that to beware of the dogs, referring to the Jewish false teachers uh, rather than to Gentiles. So then to call someone a dog was a terribly derogatory term. But for Abishai to add the word dead to it was really strong. Uh, and he asked David's permission to kill Shammai. He says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Now, if Abishai had been speaking to any other king, he would have probably gotten approval to do that. Uh, but verse 10 says, but the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Now, when David refer refers to the sons of Zeruiah, he is referring to Abishai and Joab. Um, originally, there were three sons, but their brother Asahel was uh, killed uh, by Abner, Absalom's general. Uh, but Abishai and Joab were both with David now, and Abishai, while Abishai spoke up, I'm sure Joab probably chimed in with agreement and encouragement. Uh, so the important thing to note here, though, is that David is implying that perhaps Yahweh has told Shammai to do this. You see, David is feeling the guilt of his failure with Absalom, and he is facing the reality, the re realization of his own bloody hands. And so he's saying, how do you know that God hasn't told him to do this? Look at verse 11. Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, 
Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. In other words, he's saying, I couldn't care, I could, couldn't care less about this guy. The pain I'm feeling is from what Absalom is doing. What this guy adds to it is minimal. Don't bother with him. Uh, let him uh, leave him alone. Let him curse because Yahweh's told him to do so. Yeah, I don't know whether or not Yahweh had told Shammai to curse David. I'm inclined to say no because of what we read, see later about him in chapter 19 and in 1 Kings. Uh, but it's clear that David was feeling so low that he felt like it must be that God had instructed Shammai to curse him. Verse 12, Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shammai went along the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. So David's heart was right, and rather than respond to with deadly force against his enemy, he obeyed the teaching of God's law. But it's easy in our human world to allow things to develop so that we become enemies of another person uh, and we become hostile and bitter. And instead of reaching out in love to them, instead of seeing them as our brother and our neighbor as the Old Testament does we begin to see them as the enemy and we miss the point of what jesus says and we fall to the low level of pharisaic religion that's not to be so the old testament was clear and jesus is in absolute agreement with it and so that brings us to the perversion of rabbinic tradition but before we do let me pause and find out if there's any questions or comments. I do want to address Janetta's remark about the imprecatory Psalms. Anything else? Yes. I think I know how you will answer this, but how does this apply to people in authority, judges, police officers, and so forth? In what sense? Well, if a judge, if someone's guilty of something and deserves to be sentenced to yeah. a particular thing, is yeah. he in a position to be merciful in the same way? No, we covered that. The perpetrator or perpetrator. We covered that last week when we were looking at the previous passage. Okay. Uh, where, no, the law is the law. There is no, technically there's no mercy to be allowed in the law. It's to follow the letter of the law. Now, that was what the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was all about. And uh, so it was a legal requirement, not a personal thing. So, as to the imprecatory psalms, and I may get to them later in here, I don't remember. I study so far ahead that, that uh, but um, uh, you have to understand that when David prays imprecatory psalms against those who are, they, yes, they're his enemies, but he pr he's praying those psalms because they are enemies of God. He's not praying them because of the fact that they're enemies towards him. It's not, they did this to me, now Lord, get them. It's it's Lord, they it's for your glory. You know, they they're assaulting you. So that's that's the difference. Well, look at the pervert rest of verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
That was the rabbinical religious teaching. They took the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself. They dropped off the as yourself and they added and hate your enemy. Now, in and of itself, that's a pretty clear perversion of the Old Testament command, isn't it? Uh, but then they threw in another issue. When they then began debating about who your neighbor is. Once you figured that out, you could just hate everybody else and be okay. Uh, I mean, we've already seen that the Old Testament had a pretty broad definition of who your neighbor is, right? But these guys didn't. They had an extremely narrow view. So you could just define your neighbor as your wife and your two best friends, and then you could hate the whole world. Uh, and so it all depends on your definition of neighbor. And that's exactly what Jesus gets into, not only in this passage, but in other places in Scripture, as we'll see as we proceed on through our study. Now, they perverted this command in two ways. One was by omission, and the other is by addition. Let's begin by looking at the first one, the perversion of omission. Look at the first part. He says, they, you shall love your neighbor, and it sounds pious, sounds good. It is good, since it comes directly from Leviticus 19. But whenever they wanted to make up a rule, they, they, just, they made sure that they intersected somewhere with the Old Testament. Uh, they're, but they didn't always do it right. So they're, they're kind of like a clock that doesn't run. It's still right twice a day. Uh, that's the way they were. Every once in a while, they hit on the truth. And so what they did here was take Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And they left out the words as yourself, a rather obvious omission. And in their state of self-righteous pride, that phrase just didn't fit into their system. So rather than be trapped in a situation in which they would have to treat others as equal to themselves, they just dropped it. Now, I'll grant you that, that the guys who came to Jesus in Mark 12 and in Luke 10 quoted the Old Testament correctly. Uh, but I think they just wanted to make sure they were accurate because they knew they were speaking to someone who knew the law better than they did. And so they didn't want to give him an opportunity to correct them if, he, if they could avoid it. Uh, but apparently the norm was you shall love your neighbor. But they were too proud to love anyone in a manner equal to how they love themselves. Now, have you ever thought about what that means to love someone as you love yourself? If we were only told to love our neighbors, but it didn't say as yourself, then we could just love them at a distance and treat them a little less than we treat ourselves. Which, if we're honest about it, is exactly what we do anyway, isn't it? Whatever we do for ourselves, we do half for them or a third or a tenth. Uh, I mean, if we were just to drop those two little words as yourself, it would be so convenient and far less convicting. But the Lord has a way of driving a stake right into our heart, of our, the heart of our self-esteem. He says, love your neighbors, you love yourself. Come on now, Lord, are you serious? Equal to how I love myself? Well, let's see, how do we love ourselves? Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you that you love yourself. Um, you really do. I mean, whose teeth did you brush this morning? Uh, whose hair did you comb? 
whose stomach did you fill this morning? Whose savings account is in your bank? You love yourself. You, when you love someone, you serve their needs. And all of us serve our own needs. Let's face it, we all have an unfeigned, unhypocritical love for ourselves. There are some days, uh, well, some days we may not love ourselves as much as other days, but there are no days when we fall out of love with ourselves. There are no days like that. You love yourself all the time. You're genuine and you're fervent about it. Uh, you're habitual about it. It's a permanent love. And whenever you have an interest, you want to fulfill it. Whenever you have a need, you want to meet it. Whenever you have a want, you want to supply it. Whenever you have a desire, you want to fulfill it. Uh, if you have a hope, you want to realize it. Whenever you have an ambition, you want to see it come to fruition. All of us are really working on our own behalf. It's the way life goes. We're very concerned about our own welfare, our own comfort, our own safety, our own interest, our own health. We're even concerned about our own spiritual and eternal things. We're very concerned about ourselves. We, we seek our own pleasure and we, know no, we have no limits to gaining what we want. And that is exactly the way Jesus said we are to love everyone else, including our enemies the same way we love ourselves. In other words, we are to have that same totally consuming, unfeigned, fervent, habitual, permanent love for others so that we are concerned for their interest, their needs, their wants, their desires, their hopes, their wishes, their ambitions. And it should prompt us to do everything we can to make sure that their welfare and safety and comfort and interest are met. And whatever they need and want, we're anxious to fulfill on their behalf. See, the standard is very high. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a very, very high standard. Humanly speaking, it's impossible because humanly speaking, we are totally absorbed in ourselves. That's the way we're to love. But the scribes and Pharisees weren't interested in doing that. So they just dropped as yourself. They simply omitted the part about as yourself. And when they did that, they added something else. They added and hate your enemy. And hate your enemy. Now, where did that come from? It didn't, did it come out of the Old Testament? Nope. Nowhere in the Bible does it command us to hate our enemies. So where did they get that? Did they just make that part up? Yep. That's exactly what happened. That was the logical extension of their perverted thinking. What they did was say, okay, we're commanded to love our neighbor. So first we've got to figure out who our neighbor is. First of all, let's see. Well, God commanded our ancestors to wipe out the Canaanites and the Amalekites and not to treat the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites kindly. So then since they're our enemies, we ought to hate them. And of course, because they knew that God had chosen Israel out of all the, the nations and set his special covenant love on them, they considered themselves to be the elite far better than any of the Gentiles. And so they said, our neighbors are the Jews, not the Gentiles. That's what they believed. Only the Jews qualified as someone's neighbor. 
It was a violation of their rabbinic traditions for a Jew to even enter a Gentile's house. That's why Jesus' accusers wouldn't even enter the praetorium when they took Jesus to Pilate. Uh, he had to come out to them because they didn't want to be defiled or they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. That's real hypocrisy, isn't it? They falsely accuse a man in order to have him murdered, but they won't break their tradition because they would be defiled and not be able to celebrate the Passover. Utterly despicable. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we're going to study the parable of the Good Samaritan as we go through this. Let me, uh, but we're going to have to stop for today. I, uh, I always had, hate stopping in the middle of a thought, but uh, we do have to. Any other comments or questions? Bruce, yes. There are people making a living telling other people that they don't love themselves enough. How about that? <laughs> That's right. Surely you're wrong. <laughs> Take up the problem with Jesus. <laughs> says anything about us loving ourselves. No, it doesn't. It never says, be sure to love yourselves. Yeah. It always says, love your neighbors. It assumes you love yourself as yourself. It assumes you love yourself already. And most of us do. Most, <laughs> Majority. All of us do. All of self-worth because of God yeah. and what he's done for us. Our, we have self-esteem maybe from what we accomplished. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Yes, Barry. Uh, just to say it different, I heard uh, defined once, love is, is to always uh, will the good of another. Saying mm -hmm. Well, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this time in your word today. Lord, this is a high standard that we cannot in our flesh meet. But we will see as we study this how you make it possible. Lord, we, we, we would desire that in our own lives. Now, Lord, we pray as we go into the next service that you would help us to focus on you, to worship you, to praise you our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, for all he did for us. All these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for coming, and you're dismissed.